Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here once again with Professor Akil Amar on a big day for him. Uh, welcome, Akil, and congratulations. The congratulations are due to our wonderful children, two of whom actually walked through commencement at Yale, and Andy was going to actually come out for the event, but it didn't quite materialize. But Andy, your, your intentions were absolutely great. And Andy has also been helping me through the day. It was a very emotional day, you know, two of your kids walking through graduation at, at the college that you went to way back when. Our audience has heard about uh, Andy's dental episodes. I, I have one, so I think tomorrow I'm going in for root canal, and Andy gave me some good medical advice in, in preparation for that. So um, thank you, Andy. But we're, we're really pleased, in addition to have a, a, have a really special guest today, uh, Professor James Boyle, who we'll call Jamie going forward. Um, and I'm going to welcome him in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you how we, how we came to have him here. You know, this is... Uh, Supreme Court uh, opinion season, and the court has been taking its time and unwinding some of the big cases um, that we've talked about earlier in the year. But, you know, in, in the Supreme Court ecosystem that we talk about sometimes, certain things get people's attention. So sometimes, for example, the judges will throw a joke in, in the, in the opinion or something. I can't miss it, uh, in the New York times the next day or something like that. So, um, recently they had an opinion that had for the first time, I believe all sorts of color artwork in it. And Akil calls me up because he's getting his book ready and he's thinking about color plates in his book. He's like, Oh, did you see this case? And I don't know. So we're, we're talking about it, but it turns out it's actually a very interesting case. Um, a case about, you know, copyright and fair use and that sort of thing. And so I said, oh, Keel, we got to have you, you know, talk about this. And he says, well, that's fine, except I don't know anything about it. So we said, well, then we have to get, the, you know, the world's expert on it. And, uh, and that's what we've done. So, so let me tell you, audience, a little bit about uh, how lucky you are today to have uh, Jamie Boyle on the, on the, on the podcast. Um, and by the way, um, this is also in the tradition of having people that have written important books, you know, and things like that, that have really contributed uh, in a major way to, to the, a school of thought. Um, so, for example, we've had Gordon Wood, we've had Bob Woodward, we've had Nadine Strassen, Kim Roosevelt, Sir Philip Bobbitt. These are people that all have, are important thinkers. And that's true of Professor Boyle, who's the William Neal Reynolds Professor of Law and the founder of the Center for the Study of the Public Domain, at the Duke Law School, and that should tell you a little something, that public domain business. Um, just quickly, um, he uh, graduated from the U University of Glasgow and then the Harvard Law School, and he's been at Duke since uh, 2000, although he's taught at a variety of other places, Yale, Harvard, BU, Penn, etc. Um, he's the author of several books. I, th I believe his most recent book is The Public Domain and Closing the Commons of the Mind. He's also the editor of a number of publications, He's had two graphic novels, which are really interesting, one called Bound by Law and the other Theft, A History of Music. I want to read that one um, because it goes apparently all the way back to Plato. Um, and he also has a, an open access, there's that, uh, that idea again, uh, casebook on intellectual property. He writes um, in the public press, New York Times, the FT, the Wash Poe, etc. And importantly, he was one of the founding board members of Creative Commons, 
and we're going to ask him about that. You'll hear more about that. He's won a variety of awards from, you know, teaching awards to the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Pioneer Award. There's that theme again. Um, and I was very interested to learn that in 2020, he co-authored Mark of the Devil, the university as brand bully. And who was the example that he used? His own institution of Duke as brand bully. So anyway, this is a, a man of, of insight and courage. So welcome, Professor Jamie Boyle. It's a delight to be here. And um, that article made me extremely popular among the university administrations. So <laughs> my own university as the number one, one of the, the number one university brand bully in the country. And actually, to be fair to it, one of the top brand bullies altogether. Um, and not, not universities, but any company whatsoever. And um, uh, yes, so that was possibly one of my less wise career moves. <laughs> and how do, how do you and Akil know each other? Well, gosh, I know Akil because of reading his work and admiring him and then eventually meeting him, perhaps at a conference. And then at some point I came and um, taught at Yale, which was many years ago, 25 years ago, probably, um, and got to know Akil there. And to really appreciate, I guess, given that this is um, America's constitution, the fact that when he introduced his distinctive approach to the Constitution, which consists uh, principally of reading it, um, that um, it actually did transform the conversation about constitutional interpretation. So I was fascinated by him as a person because he's a very nice guy, uh, but also as a scholar. So listen, right back at you, truthfully, you know, I, um, our audience knows I'm not a very falsely modest person, you know, maybe because, you know, I spent no time in Britain, you know, where I might have learned uh, a little bit of modesty. But one of the things, Andy, that I actually pride myself on it, you know, because people around me are smarter than I am, and, and I'm actually doing pretty well, given that, you know, I'm surrounded by people who are more impressive in, in some ways. But but I do have a, a skill, which is, you know, finding the best people to, to engage with, to, to, to talk to, and to, to learn from. And Andy, that's how I found you. You know, and, 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 and that's how I found Jamie way back when. He's someone whose work has just always really, really impressed me as the big thinker in his field. And it's not my field quite. So, you know, and usually we prepare for the podcast extensively. And this time it was made easier because, um, you know, Jamie's writings are so clear. But also he sent me some, some thoughts. And one thing that struck me as, as I looked at them right away was this observation that he had that, you know, decisions in this area, judicial decisions, don't necessarily line up ideologically the way that the court usually does. And of course, in the Warhol case, we see, as you pointed out, you know, Justices Kagan and Sotomayor going at it, you know, um, quite, uh, quite fiercely. On different, um, on different sides. Yes. yes. Sotomayor for the majority yes. and Kagan writing a pretty fierce dissent. Why do you think that is maybe, does that tell us something about intellectual property law or is there something, you know, that, that, uh, that it's so obscure that you can't figure out what, what the ideological you know, <laughs> point of view is? Or what, what is it that makes this uh, 
phenomenon? And first of all, is it a phenomenon that we're just seeing now, or is it one that's consistently been the case? Well, those are wonderful questions, a bunch of them. Um, and my answer would probably be much too long if I were to go into to each of the things that you bring up. But let me, let me just focus on it. Um, is there a reason that one has this distinction? And and the answer is yes. I think there's a fundamental intellectual reason, which is intellectual property is a Rorschach blot, um, or it's a duck rabbit, perhaps, is a better um, image, which is um, you can actually go to, for example, the Cato Institute, the Libertarian Cato Institute, and you can find people associated with the Cato Institute who think that intellectual property is wonderful. It's property. They're very fond of property. They think property enables human liberty and human flourishing. And this is just another species of property, perhaps the highest form of property, because it creates things out of nothing, as they put it. So this is not even taking away from the commons, they say. Mm-hmm. And you'll find other people associated with the same institute who say this is a government-imposed monopoly, it is distorting competition, it is basically a handout to big Hollywood, it's just another example of captured government um, trying to make other transformative business methods illegal by um, giving incumbents uh, the force of law behind them. And that's just an example within the libertarian community. So if you add in everybody else, you could be a Streisand Democrat who just loves the arts and thinks that if you have X level of incentives, then you'll get X level of innovation. But if you have 2X, then you'll get 2X level of innovation and 3 and so on up. And then you have the other side, also on the progressive side, who say, what I see here is a bunch of dinosaurs. I see a bunch of old companies trying to make different business models illegal. I see them trying to use copyright as a way of shutting down speech and silencing critics. I see this as a way of engineering my communications infrastructure. And that is not just across judicial analysis, but across the political spectrum. Those views all have some element of truth in them. And right now we're in the really interesting position that so far no one view has solidified as the liberal view or the conservative view. And I give thanks every day that that's true because it makes my field just much more interesting because you can have real conversations about it. Um, the second reason, apart from that fundamental sort of intellectual, intellectual, is it a duck, is it a rabbit sort of view when people look at intellectual property, is that intellectual property for a long time, since its inception, which is really in the early 18th century in Britain, intellectual property was something that really didn't directly affect individuals. It affected companies, and then what they did with the rights they were given affected you. You got a new drug, and you needed it. It saved your life. You got a great movie. You got a great book. But you yourself, as a human being, couldn't do the things that intellectual property regulated, like copying and distributing and creating derivative works. But now you have a phone in your pocket, and you do those things hundreds of times a day. So suddenly this thing which had been both arcane, recondite, and also sort of fundamentally philosophically divided, suddenly became one of the main areas of policy clash in the information age. And luckily, so far, no side has said, okay, we are staking our position, and this is the only conservative view, the only originalist view, the only textualist view. And as a result, it's still a relatively vibrant intellectual area. So, wow. You that, know, was, one, that was a great exposition. Thank so, you. So one could imagine that you have these um, within the same school of thought, like a libertarian school of thought. You know, you have 
things pulling, you know, one way and pulling the other way, one could imagine that that might come from perhaps a lack of clarity, you know, in the law that everybody could find some find what they want in it, um, because it's it really isn't uh, spelled out, or maybe it co- could come from the fact that. Uh, something that was clear becomes unclear as circumstances change. You know, so for example, now we have the internet, and perhaps you know what worked before and was fairly settled is you know suddenly there's up, upheaval, and it 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 really makes no sense. Um, so, mm-hmm. or perhaps it could be that it's more that you know it's more statutory than constitutional, or something like that. So you don't have you know one sentence uh, that you can refer to and say here's the base that we have to go back to. Um, would you say that any of those factors play into this? I would say that all of them play in. Um, that I think that all of those are there at different points. Some of the laws are very clear. The copyright term is very long, um, far too long, and perhaps constitutionally suspect. But I know what it is. Um, and in other areas, it's transformations uh, wrought by technology. The most interesting transformations in law and technology, as Akil knows very well, happens where we've been proceeding upon a series of unexamined assumptions, which we didn't need to examine because the technology never forced us to disaggregate them. For example, does the confrontation clause get triggered if uh, I can see you on a closed circuit camera, but you can't see me until I have a closed circuit camera? That issue isn't exactly large, looming large in my brain. Technology has certainly raised more of these issues, you know, like when you read a book in the library, attractive, you know, sort of library, you are not making a copy of it. When you read a book on an electronic device, you may be making a copy of it. You know, things have suddenly changed. So it's definitely that. But I actually think there's a fundamental psychological thing going on as well, which is which fascinates me because I think it's one of the reasons why people split on this, which is all of us contain multitudes in this regard um, in that we all have sympathies with multiple sides. When you were a kid, you probably said no fair copying to someone who was copying what you did. And you have that deep sense of this is mine. I came up with this. Right. At the same time, we also believe, as Jefferson put it, that he who lights his candle at mine is illuminated and I am not thereby made dark. On the one, the first one, we assume that the person who comes up with some innovation that benefits me has a presumptive right to capture some of that or control it. Under the other one, we think that's ludicrous that we are all constantly giving each other pieces of knowledge pieces of inspiration, things to build upon. And that's the way a culture is literally built. And if we had to ask for permission or pay for everyone, we would grind to a dead halt. But all of us contain those deep um, feelings, those deep intuitions. And what's interesting about IP, precisely because it's intangible, is that we can, as a result, trigger them very quickly. So, Andy, um, just in what Jamie just said, he quoted by name, Thomas Jefferson, so definitely fair use. And he, he alluded to, to Whitman. Walt Whitman, yes. you know, but, you know, and, and he didn't use quotation marks or air quotes, you know, but, but that's, a, he's, a, you know, part of the culture and a lot of our audience understands that's a Whitman reference. Okay. He's sampling as it were or, or a, a building. So he also did some other things. Um, he, I mentioned that he talked about 
real property or tangible property earlier versus intellectual property. And tangible property, not all of it, but much of it has a certain, you know, there's certain features that are discussed by economists. It's rivalrous. So, so let's take a, a candy bar. I can have the candy bar and I can eat it, you know, or I can give it to you and you can eat it. And once you've eaten it, there's no candy bar left for me or something. And that's not true. I think there are three features and, and Jamie's going to remind me of what the others are, rivals, but, but that's not true of like when we talk about enlightenment, light. So in theory, now there's, there's wax vapors and things like that, but, but he's saying, I have a candle. I can light, you know, your candle with, with my flame and I still got my candle, you know, and, and that's just not true of a candy bar quite. This is the idea I was at Yale commencement today uh, for our kids in case I haven't mentioned that, you know, uh, recently. Yale's motto is looks at where he toss. Harvard is only where he toss truth, but you know, yo, we've got light. And truth and light is an amazing thing that way, you know, um, and the way it spreads, um, the way you can from outer space, you can't see North Korea. There's no light there. And, and, and I, th I think it's not totally coincidental that Jefferson is using a metaphor about light and candles. But anyway, Jamie, you, your thoughts just on, on some of that. And, and I gave them a little bit of an exposition about rivals, but I think there are two other features that make intellectual property kind of different from tangible property. But the main, you main one you something out of nothing. Is, is rivalrous, and then the other one is um, excludability, so non-excludable, yes. that right. they're not supposed to be rival, and it's not supposed to be excludable. So um, to, to pick a non-IP example, satellite defense, um, uh, sorry, not asteroid defense. If we have a group of satellites that destroy oh. asteroids coming in, we can't say we will protect everyone Earth on Earth except Andy. Right. So once once you've got it, you've got it for everybody. And um, similarly um, with um, IP. It is hard without the right that the law gives you to stop other people from being able to use that thing. And, of course, for people like Jefferson, and, of course, we should acknowledge the deep irony in Jefferson's professing of deep enlightenment values and his failure to practice those mm -hmm. uh, while those around him as human beings. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at Jefferson, I mean, it is literally the enlightenment that he is talking about. Mm -hmm. So Akil was right to pick up on that phrase. Um, he actually, one of the lines is that ideas should freely spread um, across a, a time without lessening their density at any point seem mm -hmm. to be so it's almost as if they were designed to do so. So it's almost like Jefferson's actually talking about some kind of inherent destiny for um, ideas to spread and that brings the enlightenment in its wake. If that was your view, and I think it was very much Jefferson's view and Madison's view, then IP is intellectual property, forgive me, is a little bit of a conundrum because you may see the need for it. You may want to encourage innovation. You've, they very much did. Jefferson wanted to give innovation a liberal encouragement. But at the same time, they realize that they're going to be shutting down some of that very contagion of ideas that he held in such high esteem. And so they actually agonized about it. Uh, they talked about, well, maybe we could give land grants instead of actually having these exclusive rights. Um, or maybe we should limit it to a particular time. I wish they had. They didn't. And they're really seeing this trade-off between the advantages of the state-caused monopoly on the one hand and its downsides on the other. And to be honest, if we could get back to that level of insight in both our political discourse and our legal opinions, then I would be delighted because I actually think that that's the thing that people often miss, which is this central trade-off, which is someone like Macaulay said, once again, I'm referring back to other people's stuff. This is a tax on readers for the benefit of writers. And 
that's he says and you know it's a monopoly and monopoly makes things dear it makes them scarce and it makes them bad so this is a generation who real or two generations who really had mixed feelings about intellectual property and the system they bequeathed us has that split personality deep within it so going back to Andy's question, that's one of the reasons why it's so easy to start up these fundamental disputes about what's really going on here. And and I think that's what we have in the Warhol case. So, And um, just one related point, because earlier Jamie said, well, do greater incentives and rewards prompt greater output? Now there are these deep questions about what motivates people. Right. Does it have to be a monopoly? What if it were just um, a prize? What if the prize weren't economic, but just a ribbon? Andy wanted to come up to the Yale commencement this year, and he wasn't able to, but but one person who got an honorary degree, it was Robert Cairo, who was one of Andy's big heroes, a power broker, and the Lyndon Johnson. And another one was the great Guido Calabresi, his third Yale degree. Uh, our audience has heard me talk about it. Uh, another one was, was Paul Giamatti, okay? In previous years, Sir Paul McCartney. Why do I mention this? Because maybe it's not about the money. They might be motivated. I mean, people might not be perfectly altruistic, but what, maybe what they care about is recognition, you know, the fame, the glory. And they don't need anything else other than just people saying, yes, that's a, that, that, yesterday, that's a Paul McCartney song. You know, he, he, he came up with that out of his own brain. That's a Guido Calabresi idea. That's a Robert Caro project. So one question is also sort of what motivates people? You know, do you need to give them monopolies in order to encourage them to produce, you know, valuable things? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, so you're talking about incentives and, you know, and the copyright in America, you know, we look at the to the Constitution um, for it. And, you know, the, that the copyright clause, I guess you would say, um you know, starts off with a prefatory clause that, you know, is in the form of justification or a form of expressing a motivation for the clause. But, you know, I, I think that, so I think we might want to look at that. But first, just for a moment to take a, a step back to, to, to something that Jamie quoted, where he's saying that copyright is a, you know, a tax on, on readers for the benefit of writers. But I think that's, you know, that's true, but it's also for the ben- arguably for the benefit of readers, because readers wouldn't oh, yes. have anything to read if writers weren't in, weren't in a position to to write, and writers might arguably not be in a position to write if they didn't have copyright. So that so it's you know it, it's a little bit more than readers against writers, um, as that you know that phrase I think w- would formulate. Um, so anyway, absolutely. And I should have given the, the larger Macaulay context there. Um, he was very aware of that. He settled on copyright as the least bad system. He was a, a great supporter of copyright because he thought that it's um, the alternatives were things like patronage. Um, and he thought that patronage would introduce what he would have called corruption, I think we should still call corruption, into the relationships between um, artists and their patrons. Nothing could be more fatal to the independence of literary men that they should beg for their bread from great men and nobles, right? So this, in this vision, copyright is the Republican small r 
regime, which frees the author from the monarchical or or aristocratic patron and actually establishes a marketplace in which he or she attempts to see if the uh, world is interested in the thing that they express. And I, by the way, am a full-throated defender of that system. I think that's a great idea. And I even think that the basic structure of it is pretty good. Um, it's just that occasionally with new technologies, with particular changes, with political capture, um, it can go off the rails. Pop in just one answer to what Akil said. Obviously, there are what we would call multiple economies of creativity. Akil's work is actually read, which is unusual for academics, but even he makes relatively little money, I am guessing, from his books. Right. He's motivated by a different kind of prestige. The people who write Wikipedia are not motivated by money. But that doesn't mean that we don't need copyright or that we don't need economic motivations. I think there are clearly lots of cases in which we do. However, the Internet and the way that it has lowered the barriers to people creating and even creating in collaboration with others has shown us how rich the array of human motivations there are and how some things which we might have thought we had to pay for through a monopoly privilege, the Encyclopedia Britannica, we actually get without that privilege in that should be appropriately humbling to our abilities to strike the balance between incentive and restraint. And on being able to make a living off of one ideas, one's ideas without begging for bread, you see, I actually have someone who gives me a, pay- a paycheck. Thank you, Yale University. So I don't need to make money off of my writings. I can teach for a living and, and do other things and, and get paid by Yale. And then on the side, write these things. Jamie's right. I actually, um, I don't get rich off of them, but I do want people to read them. Now, Jamie, this might be a little awkward as a question, but of course you thought about it a lot. And we can talk about creative commons and other things. Some authors have gone so far as to basically make their books like free or open source or something like that. And others of us work with traditional publishers who actually charge a certain amount, maybe not an exorbitant amount, especially on a per page, you know, per paragraph, per idea basis. But how did you think about that in terms of, because it's a little recursive for you because, you know, you're writing about this stuff and you're a role model of sorts for presumably for some of your own ideas in the field. I chose have chosen to make all of my work available under Creative Commons licenses and have been able to persuade fine university presses such as Yale University Press to get me to uh, to agree to do so, so that you can, Andy mentioned one of my books, you can download that book for free. You can download, he said he wanted to read the comic book. He can download that for free too. If he wants to buy a paper version, then he can buy one with a very modest cost. Uh, I think it's about couple of pennies above the cost of production if you buy it in a bookstore. To be honest, I did that because I thought that was the right thing to do, mm-hmm. um, but actually probably been quite financially uh, successful because of it, because it turns out that your greatest enemy, this is a take from Cory Doctorow, your greatest enemy as an author isn't readers who would have paid and get for free. It's anonymity and obscurity. Mm-hmm. And the, the fewer barriers there are to my ideas, uh, to my visions, the better. One question on that, Jamie, because honestly, I know nothing about the business. Um, do trade presses ever do that or only university presses? It's hard, but sometimes. Um, so uh, some you, you do see um, commercial publishers doing it. It's been done by successfully by a number of musicians. Um, Trent Reznor, the guy behind Nine Inch Nails, had the number one most downloaded MP3 album. And even that dates when it was, it's like 10 years ago. 
um, on Amazon. And he also made it completely available for free. People paid for it, even though they could get it for nothing. So people have experimented with lots of different models, holding back some things, giving other things free. And if if I could summarize, I would say 20 years of experience there is that we know far less than we think we do about what the necessary economics of production and distribution of expressive content are. We have a lot of certainties and not very much uh, actual data. So you said something earlier, um, which I, which I found very interesting, and I think it's related to these these questions of of incentives, but also to questions of tensions in the law that I, that we referred to earlier, um, that that lead to you know this this strange alignment or lack of alignment on intellectual property issues. So you mentioned the patronage model that that preceded the copyright model, and uh, our listeners are familiar with the Ever Scholar program that. Uh, that sponsors uh, America's Constitution and uh, that I run. And um, next week, we're going to Italy uh, for a program on Roman and Florence and done quite a lot of reading about it, Renaissance, from Renaissance sources, including uh, Poliziano. So Poliziano, of course, had as his patron uh, Lorenzo de' Medici. You can't miss it in his writing about the, you know, the glorification of, of the Medici. I mean, his... Arguably, his greatest work, the stanza, is about uh, Giuliani de' Medici, um, and it's uh, and we read the works of uh, you know of of Galileo had a different kind of patron trying to you know praise the Pope at the same time to avoid you know communication. But at any rate, clearly the patronage model, as you can see from these examples, is in tension with a certain freedom of expression. Um, and now it's it's a little bit. Uh, it's interesting to think of copyright as a supporter of freedom of expression um, in, in that sense. So, that I, so you, one could see a little bit of tension there. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Um, so I think you you put it very, very nicely. Um, I'll also just flag for the audience's interest that we've seen a fascinating uh, resurgence of patronage in the modern world, patronage on the mass basis. So a Patreon page uh, or a Kickstarter page uh, where multiple people will support an expressive project that they want to get started. Um, that, again, is another example of when you lower barriers to forms of, of collaboration. You know, there were lots of people around there who would have longed for this a band to put out a vinyl album, but they didn't know each other and they didn't know that they would all pay 15 bucks in advance to get it. And that enables a creativity of a, of a new source, a compensated form. But your central question is the question, which is how does copyright um, relate to freedom of expression? And the answer is in incredibly complicated ways. In one sense, it is the most, one of the most fundamental supporters of the ecology of open expression. It says to anyone out there, regardless in theory, regardless of who they are, if they can get by the middleman, if their song is good enough, if they can do weird things with a slack key guitar, if their saccharine greeting cards appeal to, to uh, what the public wants, if their vision of a boy band is there, if they translate a Norse epic uh, into modern language and suddenly weirdly it becomes a commercial success if they write amazing books about former presidents that those people yeah. can actually be compensated for it and as a result they can quit working as a dishwasher or a busboy and of course that's exactly what we want and it does have this wonderfully 
democratizing idea. It has this idea of opening up, and it's very much connected to the small R Republican movement. Victor Hugo, wonderful author, is also one of the giants in the creation of the European copyright system. And he literally writes about this, saying that this is what copyright can give us. He says, of course, if copyright has to conflict with the public domain, the public domain must win. But I don't think that happens because the writer will always give freely to everyone his or her ideas and his or her facts. At the moment that Akhil writes a book, you write a book, the facts and ideas in that book go immediately in the public domain, regardless of what you do with it in terms of copyright. There is nothing that you can do to it to lock up those facts and ideas. You can't copyright an idea. All right, you cannot copyright an idea. Right there, that is as copyright excludes ideas and excludes facts. It even it says that if a form of expression is one of the few ways you could express an idea, so that by expressing it, you would you would effectively get a monopoly of it. You can't get that either. And then it goes still further to say, and if there are standard ways of doing things, if if we do, you know, broken glass and uh, torchlight rallies and jackbooted parades to depict the rise of Nazism, then the next filmmaker can use that too, right, can build on that. So copyright, uh, like in that sense, is really designed to promote freedom of expression. But of course, copyright also is a restriction. It says that you may not sing my song, that you may not translate my book, that you may not perhaps produce a huge excerpt of America's constitution and put it into your class without asking permission. And it also may regulate the way in which you refer to things because your intermediaries, your distributors may say, I'm not putting your movie out there. There's this music playing in the background and you haven't cleared it, even though that's obviously a fair use. Or, Look, there's a copyrighted painting on the, on the, the wall, Right. And so we're going to cut that down or we are going to give Margaret Mitchell's heirs control over Gone with the Wind long, long, long after she's dead and then allow those heirs to at least attempt to control the mythography that is built around the antebellum South. And those are all restrictions on expression. And the law has to try and deal with drawing that line between the acceptable uh, restriction because it is promoting this kind of progress, this kind of spreading of ideas and expression. I think, you know, you, 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 you got to the heart of the matter when you, talk, when you mentioned, you know, drawing the line, that that's really what, you know, what it's about in the end, because the Constitution doesn't really say what the lines are, does it? Let's, why don't we look at what it, what it says? Um, so Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, about intellectual property says, um, it's talking about the powers of Congress. Um, so, the Congress shall have power right, to. Right, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. So do you see lines in that language? I do. And the Supreme Court has sometimes seen lines there. Um, so the first thing is to understand that this is written against a background of agitation against monopolies. The statute of monopolies uh, in England, one of the real uh, fights uh, between Parliament and the monarchy, also the nobility to some extent, because the things that people objected to was that 
if you wanted to um, encourage your toadies to support you as a king and you didn't want to impose a tax because that made people uh, irritated at you, what you could do is just say, oh, I'm going to give you I'm going to give Professor Omar the monopoly over sweet wines or give Andy Lipka the monopoly over playing cards. Both real examples. But of course, we already have sweet wines and we already have playing cards. So why on earth should I be paying you for that monopoly? We've already got the innovation, right? It's already here. And so in that clause, which you read so nicely, what I see is this vision uh, quite clearly stated that what we are trying to do is promote progress. So we're looking forward. We're not looking back. We're not like, oh, Andy worked so hard. We're looking forward and saying, how do we incentivize the next person? And we also, um, the fact that they mention limited times tells me that they are concerned about these rights lasting longer than they should. Jefferson wrote that it's very difficult to discern like what line to draw that isn't doesn't produce greater embarrassment than advantage to the citizen, right? So it tells me to look at that. And there is actually a Supreme Court case, Graham versus John Deere, dealing with patent law rather than copyright law, which says that this clause, the promote the progress clause, that prefatory clause that you read, promote the progress of science and the useful arts. Science, by the way, was knowledge. That was literature, writing, and so forth. Useful arts, that was actually technology, patent, brewing, accountancy, etc. People often assume that arts means copyright and science means patent. It's the other way around. And so what they said was, well, Graham versus John Deere said, as we see it, that means that Congress may not exceed this purpose, that this confines Congress's authority, that this is not merely some you know, constitutional throat clearing of no importance to the subsequent interpretation of the clause, but it's actually the foundational purpose, which we read to do it. And as a result, they go on to say, that means that you can only give patents over stuff that's new, that's not obvious, so not stuff we would have got anyway because anyone would have come up with it, and that you may not withdraw material from the public domain. And it expresses those lines as hard and fast limitations on what Congress can do. Now let's and take, says that's quite clear. Let's take um, a case involving our mutual friend, Larry Lessig. He argued it. It wasn't about patent. It was about copyright. And it was about extending copyright, even for existing works. They've already been created. The Sonny Bono or maybe the Disney. You'll, you'll tell them the, the, the details of, of this. And one argument was, well, when you're extending the copyright for something that someone has already produced, that you're not really incentivizing some new work. Now, with some fancy footwork, I think you can say, well, maybe it is in this way or that way. But but your take on on on, on that case and t tell, tell our, our audience a little bit more about that case. That was not a patent case. Mm -hmm. That was a copyright case. And we're getting close audience, to the limits of my knowledge in this field because it's pretty modest compared to the world's expert, Jamie. Certainly not the world's expert. Yes, that case of Eldred versus Ashcroft was dealing with the retrospective copyright term extension. So copyright mm -hmm. was being extended from life plus 50 to life plus 70 for human beings mm -hmm. and 75 years to 95 years for corporations. Tell them just that's connected to what you said about Margaret Mitchell. So when you produce a, co a copyrightable work, 
You get it for your lifetime. You're the author. Plus your heirs are getting it for a certain number of years after you die. And that's why earlier you told the audience about Margaret Mitchell's, the author of Gone with the Wind, her heirs are now uh, doing this. So it was originally at a certain point, life plus 50. Mm-hmm. And then this, um, and then you were saying retroactively, as it were, or quasi retroactively, at least they're expanding copyright for, for things that have already been written. Yes. And in many cases that the authors are actually dead. So mm. barring the intercession of actual ghostwriters, <laughs> um, it seems like pretty clear that we're not going to get uh, more production out of them. Um, and and Akil is right, of course. We can make fancy arguments. Maybe this will incentivize migrating it onto new media formats or distributing, or maybe it will harmonize this or harmonize that. They're, they're pretty weak um, they're arguments. To be honest, I think this is one of the very few debates where the empirics are pretty clear. Um, extending copyright term is just bad, economically speaking. It doesn't produce. Uh, we have excellent evidence to show this. It's it just a produce. windfall. It's a windfall. It's just a windfall. Um, some people think of it as a, as a moral issue also, and I want to flag that, which is they say, no, it's my book. Forever. <laughs> I should own it. And, oh, forever uh, then. Yeah, yeah, just forever. like it's my lake. Samuel you know? Clemens. It's, Samuel it's, Clemens it's, said uh, that uh, Mark Twain said that that um, that the, 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 the clause that Andy read uh, was um, apparently putting uh, taking uh, the place of an older law, namely the Decalogue, thou shalt not steal. He felt uh, quite uh, quite upset about it. But um, the case, Eldred versus Ashcroft, was about retrospective extension of copyright. It was a challenge both under the First Amendment, that this had First Amendment problems because um, that you've got your strongest constitutional basis to say I'm not restricting speech if you're actually encouraging the production of new speech, if you're actually simply allowing restrictions on speech for 20 years longer than you would have, but not getting any new works out of it, that argument is correspondingly much weaker. So the speech uh, vulnerabilities are heightened. And also on the grounds that this violated in several ways um, the restrictions imposed by the Intellectual Property Clause, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8. Limited um, times and purpose. Limited times per purpose, but but even uh, you know, it's, is this truly a limited time? If I can keep on setting it, I mean, if I if I sentence Andy to twenty years and say that's a limited time sentence, and then I just up it to twenty five, and then to thirty, and then thirty five, <laughs> um, you know, as Stalin's uh, Stalin's uh, gulags did all the time, is that still a limited sentence? Uh, if Andy Warhol produces a limited run of paintings and said you buy one, say oh this is a limited run, fifty prints, there's only fifty of these, this is worth buying, and then he says eh. Still limited, but now it's going to be 500,000. Do we really think of that as limited? And there are all kinds of issues which come up all over the law, for example, in sort of mootness, standing and so forth, you know, capable capable of repetition yet avoiding review. If we say that this is okay because there's still a limit, can Congress effectively just keep on extending the copyright term, granting perpetual copyright under the installment plan, as Peter Yazzie once said? And so all of those arguments were put forward. And what was fascinating is that the eventual majority, which included Justice Ginsburg, but also included Justice Scalia, a number of um, uh, people who are devoted originalists, people who had just authored Lopez and Morrison applying more rigorous limits on Congress's power under the Commerce Clause, saying, sorry, you've read this too far. These are the limits. If we look at the history, there's real limits that you aren't 
uh, you aren't um, actually respecting here. Stopping violence against women doesn't actually justify this this, uh, legislation. And even if it did, it's not affecting commerce. That was the Morrison case, the Violence Against Women Act case, United States versus Morrison that Jamie just referred to. Sorry, Morrison and and also and but also Lopez, and those, which was about uh, guns in schools, and the court said that that doesn't have to do with interstate commerce in any obvious way. Right, and so there you could see the court, including a conservative majority, saying we're going to take these words of limitation of congressional power very seriously, and we're going to impose them, and we're going to look very much for limits. What happens in Eldred, the copyright extension case, is that those same judges join Justice Ginsburg, liberal hero, who writes the majority opinion and says, this is fine. We've just got to defer to Congress. It's what they think the progress is. Who? It's not for us to say what promoting the progress means. And certainly it would be ludicrous to think that the court's job was to figure out what the right number of years for the copyright term is. That's a classically legislative function. But things like retrospective extension seem like they might actually be really pushing at that. And what Justice Ginsburg chose to do was basically to ignore, and and if I could be honest, slightly mischaracterize, the Graham opinion that I discussed before, the one in patent that said promote the progress is a real limitation. It's of actual substantive limitation. And she minimized it. She said it was a case about something else. And she said, in any way, it doesn't apply here. And besides, that's about patent. And that leaves us with a fundamentally unresolved question, which is in Eldred and then in another case, Golan, which actually took copyrighted works out of the public domain and put them back under copyright, which was a step even further. The very step that Graham said could never be done. Again, Justice Ginsburg said, this is absolutely fine. And so is that just copyright-specific constitutional law? So just, uh, Jamie, on the the Eldred case... You know, extended existing copyrights, but none of these had fallen out of copyright. And then the, the more recent case, stuff that had fallen out of protection got put back in, into protection and, and, in effect, yanked from the public domain. That's exactly right. Um, it was actually taking things that people were free to use. So Peter and the Wolf, for example, you were free as an orchestra conductor to make your own version of Peter and the Wolf. And not pay a licensing fee, and whoops, suddenly it's back under copyright. What happened to the works that had been derivative works that had been made in the interim? Congress had a transitionary uh, regime which was about as unsatisfying as those transitionary regimes always are, where you, you know, you get some time to wind down and the other person, you know, should probably give you a, it, it's, it was basically a, a fig leaf in my view, which tried to say, well, we're, we're not immune to the fairness claims of the people who have actually invested in fair reliance on the fact that these were in the public domain, their labors to make something new. Remember, new works promoting the progress right there. This is a new version of Peter and the Wolf, um, but it was very unsatisfying. And so what we have basically is this big split. Did they get copyright on their works? So under the uh, old rules, the rules that this law changed, they would have been able to, but only what they had changed. So you wouldn't get copyright on Peter and the Wolf. You would get right. copyright on Peter and the Wolf arranged for a string quartet. Mm-hmm. Right. And you would only get that arrangement. And in order to infringe it, I'd have to take exactly what it was that you did in terms Mm -hmm. of the arrangement. So it's a very limited, a thinner copyright. Fascinating. You know, when we talk about this tension between, in some cases, the First Amendment and copyright, I'm just wondering if 
uh, how this works. I'm sure there's an answer to this. So I'm just asking, this is kind of an ignorant question, I guess. But, you know, Akil has taught, taught us that, that um, you know, the Constitution is not a word processing document, but is, but is written, you know, sort of consecutively. And so, you know, the 13th Amendment uh, makes the fugitive slave law, you know, moot, you know, whatever. Um, it, you can't enforce the fugitive slave law once you have the 13th Amendment, even though, uh, or, or a fugitive slave clause, um, you know, even though it's it's still in the Constitution, you know, technically. So the First Amendment comes after the, you know, Article One because it's an amendment. So does it override copyright because of its later status, you know, on the calendar? I will give you the official position, the, the Supreme Court's official position, much of which is right, um, not all of it, which is that the same people wrote the First Amendment who wrote uh, the copyright clause, and they presumably thought that it was um, coherent, that these two things came together. Um, what's more, there's a good reason for them to think so, because copyright actually does incentivize the production and distribution of speech, which remember, the distribution part, that's very much what these people are thinking about with mm -hmm. this enormous country that they have uh, taken over. They want stuff spread. And as a result, they see copyright as largely speech protective, speech encouraging. Um, this is not a world where there is ubiquitous factual and other information constantly flowing in and out of your uh, your screen. Right. So they see them as harmonious to the extent that they weren't, goes the conventional view. There's interior features of copyright that resolve the problem. The main one is the idea fact distinction that ideas and facts can never be copyrightable. So don't take my words or my song, paraphrase what I am writing about in my novel or, you know, or or tell people about what the song sounds like. You don't need the actual music. And the second one is fair use, the idea that people can actually make a fair use of a copyrighted work when they really need the protected expression. So there's the conventional story. Most of the time they work together, to the extent they don't, the internal limitations of copyright take care of the speech issues. Andy, just and let me just jump in a bit because I haven't plugged my most recent book in the last 30 seconds. But in the words that made us, I observe that most of the big founders are actually newspaper people, like Ben Franklin, who actually owns a string of newspaper outlets. He'd be like Rupert Murdoch today, or they're um, newspaper columnists. Publius, um, the Federalist Papers, begin as newspaper essays, uh, co-authored anonymously by Madison and Hamilton, among others. Uh, Jay pitches in, and John Adams is writing newspaper essays as Humphrey Plough Jogger and Ovanglis, and George Washington reads more newspapers than just about anyone else around. So, um, okay. And I say, you know, you can't really imagine American constitutionalism without a newspaper culture. Constitution is, writ is, is short so that people can reproduce it in newspapers, and it is reproduced in newspapers. And there's a lot of copying going on, I say at a couple of levels, copying of ideas and concepts. So Virginia publishes a Declaration of Rights, and then some of that same language will appear in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and New Hampshire. And Maryland publishes something. I can't remember if I think Maryland was first and then Delaware copy, copies it. So copying of concepts and even words, but these are kind of public documents like Declarations of Rights. But also there's a lot of just copying someone else's newspaper piece from a city a hundred miles to the south or to the north, getting newspapers from out of town and 
and reprint them. This is actually the first page of the book. They're getting London newspapers and reprinting them, frankly, just putting them in their own uh, type, telling the reader, here's what we just learned. King George II is dead. And his grandson, King George III, um, has been proclaimed. And and they, they don't rewrite the thing. This is just like word for word. They're just taken, you know, so we might call it retweeting or something. And you know, is that fair use? Well, what was the implicit market, geographic market of, of the London Times? And now it's being republished without, I think, probably paying anything in Boston um, or New York. So there's that whole set of things, which is fascinating. Just the the newspaper culture which involved a lot of copying and a lot of retweeting at the founding, frankly. And the people weren't paying very much for content, truthfully. Tom, Thomas Paine wants to get paid for his content. And, and that's what Jamie was talking about before. You can actually have authors who can, you know, poor boys who can make a living by coming up with something amazing like Common Sense, which was ripped off a lot. He still made a lot of money, but a lot of people actually republished Common Sense without paying proper anything really to, to Thomas Paine. But the other thing I was just going to mention, and this is talked about in passing in the book, the Stamp Act was really stupid, not just because it was t- from the British point of view, not just because it was taxation without representation, which got the colonists all hopped up because taxation without you're taking property, you're taking money out of my pocket and you can't do that because I don't get to vote for parliament. But of all the things you can tax in the world, putting a tax on newspapers, on paper, was a very bad idea for a couple of reasons. One, because the newspapers are going to push back because they're not paying for content. In fact, they're just paying for paper and ink. That's all they do. And you're now putting a tax on paper. They're going to push back against that and people are going to read that. So that was just kind of a dumb thing. You know, you could tax tea, you could tax tallow, you could tax tar, lots of things. Okay. But putting a tax on paper was pretty stupid because the newspapers are going to push back. Point one. And because it could be seen as the first step to a kind of governmental licensing system. You know, gee, you know, if we can basically prevent you from publishing certain things unless we, you pay a certain tax, well, can we prevent you from publishing things unless you get, you know, other kinds of, of, of approvals? On originalist grounds, any of the, you folks who are out there, I think there's some very interesting things to be written about America's early newspaper culture. If I understand you correctly, Jamie, then you're saying that uh, that there's a a First Amendment aspect to fair use that the uh, that that it's there to preserve the ability to communicate uh, I- expression of, of particular ideas. So um, I would think then that it would particularly favor political ideas, right, yes. as opposed to just yes, some- one would. One would expect that. And I mean, even Justice Ginsburg, who in um, Eldred and in Gull, in the cases that we discussed earlier that extended uh, copyright retrospectively or indeed took things out of the public domain, did refer to um, the traditional contours of copyright by which she meant things like the idea expression distinction of fair use as the the safeguards that kept that kept the First Amendment at bay. And she said that there was no need to challenge the constitutionality of the of copyright under free speech grants so long as they remained unchanged. So that you could read that as an implicit limitation that if I said, OK, I'm going to abolish fair use or if I said only Democrats get fair use, that at that point would immediately trigger First Amendment scrutiny. So um, earlier uh, I mentioned in passing and you had mentioned also briefly about the, the changes that the Internet wrought. In the in the copyright world, so I'm I'm interested in, in talking about that, but also I'd like to know 
um, about your involvement with Creative Commons and that sort of thing. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about it. And are these things related? In other words, um, you know, you you did your work with Creative Commons and similar things like the reason the Electronic Frontier Foundation likes you, you know, and that sort of thing. Is this is this all related to changes in the way that we should think about copyright because of the advent of the internet? Are these all of a piece? That's a, a great question. For me, the answer is that the internet made apparent something that we'd kind of known all along, but it the internet forced us to uh, look at it. Um, the first one was the diversity of motifs with which people created, um, which we we mentioned earlier. And by lowering barriers to entry, by allowing people to collaborate, we suddenly saw this you know explosion of creativity, which copyright really played very little role of in any kind of traditional way. And to the extent it did play a role, it was largely getting in the way. So, so that's like Wikipedia. A lot of people just working to create something. Each person adds a little bit and and they're not getting compensated for it, but they they are helping to create an encyclopedia. Right. And even mixed models. So, for example, if you have an Android phone, Google spent hundreds of millions of dollars developing Android as an operating system, very much Google, very much a very for-profit company because it didn't want Apple to dominate the smartphone operating system market and as a result perhaps take away their advertising fee. And Google then says to you, to any of us, you can copy this operating system. Really? Um, right? You, know, you, 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 you can have it. But there are also lots of other people who aren't paid by Google who have contributed code that ended up in that operating system, and they were driven by different motives. Maybe they were showing off how good they were at coding. So back to Andy's question, what's the connection? When we, I had been involved also, full disclosure, I helped to write an amicus brief in the the Eldred case and uh, arguing that it was an unconstitutional um, extension of copyright. And as we saw what was happening with copyright, which is basically copyright was being extended in time, it was extending what it covered, so more acts were subject to copyright, it was regulating tinier and tinier amounts of content, so one court said that even two notes being sampled by someone Right, that that wasn't de minimis. So like you know, so, so, not not just taking a whole tune, but taking just the tiniest little fragment. So copyright is sort of metastasizing and covering all kinds of new areas. And what we thought is, well, who is going to provide the tools for the people who actually want to share, right, their own stuff, not take other people's stuff and share it, but share the work that they produce themselves. And how am I going to know that if Akil says, yeah, you can use my book, you know, for educational stuff? Well, what about if I work at Phoenix University and it's a for-profit university? Or what about if I'm doing the internal uh, education at IBM? Like, can I still use his book? Right. And we thought, well, no one. So we, we contacted the copyright office and said, what's your preferred method for opening things up, putting things into the public domain or letting people share them? And the copyright office said, and I quote, we don't provide that service. Their vision of what they did was they were all about locking stuff up. Mm. This is crazy. Like, what? Why? Why are you? Why would we have this technique? And what we realized was that there was a blindness here, and the blindness was to the legions of creators, private citizens, scientists, researchers, who, and even people in the for-profit economy, who the conventional copyright system wasn't giving them the tools they wanted. And what we wanted to do was allow them to exercise their copyrights. Not to be against the copyright, but to say, you get to actually exercise it. If you want to share, you should be able to share. 
And so that was the idea behind Creative Commons. And I'm delighted to say that a now, about 97, 98%, if I last time I looked, of all open um, access scientific uh, journals, for example, are under our licenses. If you wanted to see why research on COVID could go so fast, it's because during the height of the pandemic, people shared without thinking about how do I clear this? How do I do it? And they did that a lot of times using our licenses because the key thing was sharing the knowledge so that more eyes could look at it. So my vision, and I was only working with a group of you know much more distinguished people like Larry Lessig and Hal Abelson and so forth. But my vision in that was that I wanted to enable the sharing economy as well as the restriction economy. I'm a big supporter of copyright, don't get me wrong. Um, and what I'm doing here is basically giving you another tool in your tool belt as a creator so that you could share this material. So that on this very podcast, you could decide to say, you know what? This is really good stuff, and it would be fantastic if someone was were to translate it into other languages because people care about the American Constitution, but we're not going to do it. You could put it up under a license that allowed someone to translate it into another language so long as they did so on a non-commercial basis. And you could do that as a human being without a lawyer. And so that that's the kind of thing that we wanted to enable and to, to actually promote the progress in a way other than simply by locking things up. You know, it's uh, sometimes I, 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 I might be an advocate for locking certain things up and, and preserving a certain level of profit as a physician because, um, you know, there is such a thing as, as medical research and, you know, you have peer-reviewed journals. And um, so, you know, it can be pricey to, you know, to, to, to run those. The presence of a, of a sort of an authoritative place where you can go where you know that these you know, th these articles have been peer reviewed, you can you trust them at a certain level um, is valuable. Now, you could get that in the free economy also. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a pre existing infrastructure that uh, that right. facilitates that. That's true. It turns out that the case. So I do believe that scientific publishing is enormously valuable. And I do believe in locking things up uh, under certain conditions. Of course, I do. Um, um, and I do believe in author's rights. The case for um, enforcing copyright over scholarly publishing is as an economic matter in terms of actually producing better science or more thoroughly peer-reviewed science is not one that is borne out uh, by reality. Um, some of the, it's true that, you know, nature and cell and so forth are still uh, the, the highest impact factor. The Lancet and so forth are uh, proprietary journals and frequently charge extremely high prices. But if you look immediately there, you'll see that some of the highest impact factor journals are actually things like the Public Library of Science, which are actually um, under Creative Commons licenses. Those journals actually achieve more impact, more spread, precisely because there are lots of researchers who don't live behind a Yale uh, paywall. Because uh, if you're at Yale, everything looks like a commons because Yale Library buys everything right. or buys a lot of things. Um, but if you're someone who's a smart person in Nigeria or in Poland, maybe you can't get access to that. And it's pretty clear that we benefit from uh, as many eyes as possible uh, being able to look at your data um, because someone out there might have a better idea of what to do with it than you. Right, so but, on that mm -hmm. particular front, I think that, um, so what happened was Congress has actually now mandated that federally funded scientific research should be available at birth freely on the open web, regardless of how it is subsequently produced or published. Once you have the articles being peer reviewed and so forth, you have to put up a public free version 
And I think it's pretty clear that that is actually the best scientific policy and that that can coexist with private publishers, some of whom make you pay to get that free access Mm -hmm. so that, Andy, they might say to you, we'll make your article on eye surgery freely available to everyone in the world. It'll cost you 1300 bucks. And so in that sense, we get the best of both worlds because we get open access, but we also get supporting that kind of uh, publishing industry. Well, I I would argue that, uh, you know, what what you just made is an argument for um, research to be done and be put out there so that there's more more information out there. I I would argue that that, um, there is value in labeling research as good or bad. You know, that when you have a lot of... When you have a lot of bad research out there, um, there there's le- there's less of a barrier to having bad research out there under this under this model. And then you get things like that uh, that that review of of seventy eight uh, articles about uh, you know COVID that was you know most of which were were terrible. You know that uh, resulted in in Brit Stevens saying that uh, vaccines don't work. You know or something like that. Yep. You know which which was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so. I, I absolutely agree. I do think on that, um, that, you know, there is so what you're arguing for is peer review. And what I was pointing out is that there is a huge open access peer reviewed uh, world. So right. peer review, you're, you're treating open access and peer review as if they were antagonistic when they simply as a factual matter, they are not. And then uh, also, I, I entirely agree with you that we want reliable science and that we don't want fraud and we don't want, you know, incorrect science. And it's true that there are some people who might want to set up, you know, fake open access journals and just publish, you know, nonsense or publish anything. But then, of course, we also have proprietary journals that have allowed the publication of, of ludicrous things. So I, I think that what I would do is I just keep the two questions separate, which is th- there's a really interesting argument going on in science right now about peer review and whether or not post-publication peer review is actually really, really good. Uh, so that, you know, you put stuff up on the web and that people go, this is nonsense, you know, like, and he didn't do the science right. Like the numbers don't add up. And there's all kinds of interesting studies of how peer review works and whether or not it has confirmation bias and so forth, whether or not it stops the radical ideas. And I actually, what I would resonate with you is like, what we need is experimentation because we have strong intuitions about the best ecology for producing uh, more and better science. We do very little empirical testing of those assumptions. And to the extent we have isolated any of them, for example, the effect of peer review on truly transgressive science or truly uh, like unusual science, like the mRNA vaccines, for example. The mRNA vaccines, the people attempting to publish on those were repeatedly turned out by peer review journals because they thought this was a dead end. Well, they, they were wrong. Right. But this isn't it's not. And by the way, they were also turned down by open access. Journals. This is this was a failure uh, in general. But I think that it's um, humility is should be our watchword here and not assuming that the current relatively arbitrary political economy we have inherited automatically has the attributes of being best for the values that we want to promote, which I think you and I share. Um, so I agree with all that. I I, I um I do think that uh, there's pluses and minuses. I was just saying that I I, I don't think there that there's an absence of pluses. You know, there's a we tend to in in peer review we tend to have a I think many of us tend to say well open is good. You know, that's a value that that just resonates with most people. Open, you know, freedom. You know, uh, um, that seems like a good thing. You know, in in general, so. You know, we may have biases in that direction as well. So I think, like you say, it all the, the testing is is the right way to go. 
I, I was just going to jump in saying on post-publication peer review of a certain sort, it's not completely unconnected to my obsession in earlier episodes of this podcast with citation counts, which are a certain kind of post-publication peer review. And then we'd ideally might want to distinguish between favorable and unfavorable citations or something, but but that's data. Prizes of a certain sort awarded by peers, which are post-publication, which is why we mentioned that so-and-so got this prize or or that prize, they, um, at commencement, uh, prizes were announced actually, and and we clapped when we heard certain graduates got this prize, that prize. Andy, we're gonna, I hope, have Jamie on again because there's so much to talk about. We didn't really talk about a whole bunch of things like music, artificial intelligence. I know is something that Andy's is interested in. But Jamie, before this episode ends, I do hope we can get your thoughts. On the Warhol case, right. um, which is partly why we decided to to bring Jamie this week rather than you know uh, three months ago or three months from from now. So maybe could could we actually just transition a little bit to that one? Because audience, I promise you, Jamie has lots of thoughts on lots of important things, and with his you know willingness, we're going to have him back again. Uh, please, I think we learned a lot about the. Uh about copyright, you know, and, and a lot of the issues. So I guess what I would ask you uh, is, first of all, is this an important case? And if it is, mm-hmm. um, you know, what aspects of some of the things that we've been talking about does it uh, implicate? Um, and how and, would... And, and, t- and tell us about, you know, the facts of the case. And all st- what Andy and I know, and here I mean Andy Lipka, is that um, recently for our joint birthdays, our birthdays are about the same time of year. In September, we sometimes, you know, our families uh, uh, get together, at the, um, uh, Andy and, and his spouse and yours truly and, and my spouse, and we, we, we have a little celebration. So, so we went recently for one of our birthdays to Philip Johnson's Glass House. And there were a couple of issues there. One, oh, Mies van der Rohe was really annoyed that Philip Johnson, from Mies van der Rohe's point of view, like stole his idea from Farnsworth House. And, and, and so he stopped talking to, to Philip Johnson, I think, at a certain point, because he thought like that, that basically was my idea, my concept that you stole. But also, if you go to Philip Johnson's Glass House in New Canaan, Connecticut, and oh, it's a lot of fun, you'll hear a lot about Andy Warhol, in fact, because he was very much in, in Philip Johnson's inner circle. So we heard a lot about Andy Warhol when we, when we, when Andy Lipka and I went to the, the Glass House. And now there's a case all about Andy Warhol. So if you could just actually tell us about the facts of the case and, and the, the lineups, um, kind of complicated and what, and what you thought about um, it all. Excellent. Well, with your permission, what I'm going to do is give you a series of basically not sound bites, because this is a much deeper uh, thing than that, but a, a series of chunks, because I think there's a lot to cover and that we, we need to put up the walls before we do the roof. So first, some background. Fair use, uh, Section 107 of the Copyright Act, is an exception to the exclusive rights uh, that copyright uh, provides. All of those exclusive rights, the rights to copy, to, to authorize derivative works and so forth, are subject to fair use. So the author never gets in the first place the right to stop someone else from writing a critical review of his book. Like that right is never handed out in the first place. Uh, it's subject to fair use. And fair use is designed for the times when you actually need the very expression that the person has used. You need to show the person 
the person's book and uh, maybe a whole chapter of it to show that your claim that they're anti-Semitic is true. You need the video because that provides the evidence. You need the picture because you are talking about the picture and you have to show the reader what you're talking about. Normally, copyright allows you to use paraphrase because you can use facts and ideas. And so copyright doesn't cover those. So that's great. But now you're actually needing the copyrighted expression, the stuff that copyright covers. And that's where fair use comes in. Fair use is copyright's duct tape. It is the thing that copyright uses. If you're like me and you can't really fix things in your house, the answer if it breaks is normally slap duct tape on it. Well, in copyright world, the answer is slap section 107 on it and call it a fair use. (laughs) And fair use as a result is, as the court has said, designed to pull copyright back when the full extension of the copyright rights would retard the very progress that copyright is supposed to promote. That's the goal of fair use. So that's the setup. Second thing, fair use is very open. There's four non-exhaustive factors. There are non-exhaustive factors to look at. There's a list of illustrative things that are types of fair use. And it's left to the courts very deliberately for the courts to make a decision about what is a fair use. In fact, fair use itself is a judicial creation. There was no statute embodying fair use until the courts came up with it. And then the courts, then Congress attempted to enact it into law and has largely left it to the courts. So that's the second part. It's very important. It's a limitation on copyright. It's the duct tape of the system and it's largely court made law. Final thing. There are a surprising number of things that weren't particularly clear inside fair use. So for example, was a parody a fair use? You might think, well, that's obviously a classic fair use, because if I want to make fun of your work, you're probably not going to authorize me to do it. And if I'm going to parody your work, what do I need? Your work. Otherwise, how could I parody it? It seems like the classic case. But that took until you know, relatively recently a case called Acuff Rose with Roy Orbison going up against two live crew over a rap version of the song, Oh Pretty Woman, for the court to say that transformative uses, a word that does not occur in section 107, transformative uses are actually, can be fair uses for a number of reasons. One of which is we have authors standing on the shoulders of other authors. We love this. This is progress, right? The author needed to stand on the shoulders of giants to make the second author's point. So yay, this is what we're in favor of, right? But there's also, as the court acknowledges, sometimes we want to allow second pieces of expression that actually hurt the first piece of expression, the scathing theater review that destroys demand for the play is protected as a fair use. If people Mm -hmm. stop reading Gone with the Wind because Mm -hmm. of the wind ungone, then that's okay. Mm -hmm. So there's the setup. Okay. The Warhol case. The courts had floundered around with the Um, word transformation, which of course could mean almost anything. And in classic common law manner, which I think uh, is very interesting here, given that this is a statute, they had turned this word, which you might think you understood what it meant in parody. It's like, yeah, I get that. It's a transformation of a song to parody the song. That that makes, that's whatever. And they'd used it in all kinds of other ways. So for example, protecting search engines, that if I take your picture, I'm searching for Akil Amar. I want to see his pretty face. And a bunch of things comes up, and some of them aren't the Yaquil Amar I want. I can see by the thumbnails which is the one that I want. And those are copyrighted photographs, but Google is not infringing the copyright, even when it reproduces those little thumbnails on its search page, because it's a 
transformation. Not a transformation of the picture, it's still Kiel's pretty face, but rather a transformation of the function. With that as the background, enter the Andy Warhol Foundation and Lynn Goldsmith. Lynn Goldsmith is an iconic rock photographer, a photographer of musicians, also other celebrities sometimes, but musicians most famously. Andy Warhol is an iconic artist. This case involved a photograph that Goldsmith had taken of Prince. Uh, she had, in fact, licensed the photograph for a one-time use to Condé Nast and Warhol on an earlier occasion so that he could make a silkscreen of it. Um, and she got 400 bucks. And then Warhol went on to make a whole series, the Prince series, which you have probably seen, which you could feature on the Instagram page here, including one called the Orange Prince, uh, which is a cropped version of him in which you have the classic uh, uh, Warhol sort of orange wash across everything, uh, transforming, as one observer said, the nervous, almost insecure Prince of Goldsmith's photograph into this iconic figure. And the question was, when Warhol made these silkscreen prints of her earlier photograph, were those transformations, were they transformational in a way that meant that she could take advantage of fair use? Originally, the case was about the whole series of transformations, of 14 of them, I believe, some a number roughly around then. Um, and then it gets narrowed right at the Supreme Court stage to just one single licensing example, which was very smart lawyering on the part of um, Goldsmith lawyers, which was that, ironically, Warhol licensed it to Condé Nast and said, yeah, you want a, a tribute when Prince dies? Here, you can use my orange Prince. And he gets 10,000 bucks for it and she gets nothing. And uh, personally, my sympathies are with Goldsmith because she's not getting paid for this, which doesn't necessarily mean that that's the legal analysis that I would perform. My, I think that my sympathies are with her. The Second Circuit colossally messed things up in what I think is widely accepted in the legal community to be an embarrassing decision. Uh, first of all, they said derivative works weren't subject to the fair use provisions. Well, the, the statute says all of the exclusive rights are subject to the fair use provisions. So that's just wrong. Then they withdraw that, which is sort of like a, a dead giveaway. Never mind. Not writing very good. <laughs> yeah, never mind. Never mind. Who, who mentioned fair use? We didn't mention fair use. Anyway, it, it's just a very confused and confusing opinion. Um, basically, the Second Circuit had been all over the map on fair use and transformative use. And like the bad parent who is indulgent one day and incredibly strict the next, but the child can never tell, that was the Second Circuit of fair use. Their sort of like one opinion was like a ludicrously generous in terms of fair use. The Cariou case, this case, I thought uh, very bad and all comes to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court ends up deciding is something very narrow. It says the majority, Justice Sotomayor writes the majority, and they say, we're deciding something super narrow, which is just that the use here is that Warhol chooses to license this one particular print to Condé Nast for one particular magazine cover, the very same market that Lynn Goldsmith is attempting to enter. She licenses her photographs for magazine covers. This is exactly the use Therefore, it's not transformational. So notice what they're focusing on here. Mm -hmm. They're not focusing as much on the artwork, right? The transform meaning, they're focusing on effectively the, subs the market substitution, market. which, by the way, again, I'll say I'm sympathetic to Goldsmith here. I think regardless of their status in copyright law, the Warhol Foundation is um, was guilty of, of I think, uh, extremely poor and, and rather... Um, 
extremely poor judgment and and also i think some level of unfairness there are lots of legal rights that i have that i don't exercise to the full even this were a fair use it seems to me that a, a modest payment to lynn goldsmith would have been entirely would, would your view be different on that if they offered her something and she didn't take you know what to, just to you seemed like a you know like a fair price so this like connected to issues of kind of compulsory license and whether you, you know uh, because because she might think ah oh, well i've got a hold situation here if i say there's a lot of money that Connie nass might be willing to pay warhol and i'm gonna you know um uh, hold him up a little bit in an extortionistic um bargain the, the the one the concern i would have would not so much extortionistic i mean artists should be able to set their the prices for their work but rather mm-hmm. um the censorship question which is that the artist can use their copyright as a way of censoring commentary on that work so that mm-hmm. effectively in my view was what the mitchell estate was attempting to do with gone with the wind they said the wind ungone a novel written by an african-american novelist which depicted the same story but from the uh, slave's perspective obviously a very different book they said, oh, this is just an unauthorized derivative work, as if it was just a sequel, like as if they were going to license this book, which they never would have done in a million years. Mm-hmm. In that situation, the ability to set the price is the ability to say no. It's the property rule rather than the liability rule, as Akil points out, uh, having mentioned Guido earlier, right? That that's gives the power to absolutely say no. And there, when there are speech concerns of that kind... Uh, namely, would we not get this viewpoint, mm-hmm. then I think the pure market vision declines accordingly in its persuasiveness. Mm-hmm. The court no, saw no such comment here. We could argue about what Warhol's representation of Prince actually meant. Um, Justice Kagan in a very powerful and extremely, both the dissent of the majority are rather snarky. I have to say this snarkometer on this Supreme Court opinion pretty much pegs the needle. Um, Justice Kagan, and I have to agree, I agree with more in Justice Kagan's opinion than I do with Justice Sotomayor's opinion. I, I think there are places where I disagree with each of them. Justice Kagan says, this is ludicrous. Are you saying that if I offered you, the, on the one hand, the Goldsmith black and white photo, and on the other hand, this, you know, sort of orange silkscreen with the iconic prince in a classic Warhol mode, that you go, meh, two pictures of prince. I really yell, flip a coin. I can't possibly choose between them. Of course not, says Justice Kagan. The second one is a dramatic transformation. It's a different thing. And as she says rather woundingly, that the majority would have no um, job as a magazine editor if they made decisions that way, because obviously it's the editor's job to pick the kind of message. The majority pushes back and says, well, if that's true, then anyone could just come in and take any artwork and say, I'll do a different version and maybe someone will like it. And that will effectively destroy the original artist's market for so-called derivative works. Maybe I want to make a children's book out of Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, right? And Proust should be able to license that, presumably be a rather long children's book. (laughs) So... So that's what you have this clash on the one hand, very importantly, and I thoroughly support it, the economics interests of authors um, in protecting their markets, not just for the original, the original photo, but for derivatives. On the other hand, this undeniable function that fair use has to enable transformative works that build on work that came before, sometimes transgressively, sometimes in ways that the original artist doesn't like. The case is a fundamentally unsatisfying one, in my view. The majority says that, as they often do when they have bad bad facts make bad law, these are very unsympathetic facts for the Warhol Foundation. And the court rules 
and a lot of people will say, well, absolutely rightly so for Goldsmith. And it says, we're just deciding this tiny, narrow question with this one picture and this one licensing use. And we're not deciding any of the other things. We're not deciding whether this would be okay if it were in a gallery. We're not deciding whether it was okay if it's instead a commentary on Warhol rather than a retrospective on his life, right? It's the narrowest possible decision. And Justice Kagan, I think, fairly says, uh, sadly, your decision is nowhere near as modest as you believe it to be because what the court undid was a whole bunch of precedent, some of it Supreme Court precedent, some of it Appeals Court precedent, which had said pretty clearly that it's not only parodies that are transformative. It can be lots of other things that can be, there can be satires that should be protected by fair use as well. It makes uh, a particular narrow vision of the market dominant in its analysis in a way that previous cases have pushed back on. And what's more, it doesn't observe the boundary lines. I mean, you say you're just deciding this one issue, but what happens if somebody then wants to put the magazine in a museum? Is that a fair use? How are the lower courts supposed to know? Uh, you know, it's, it's like, of course, there are multiple uses. There were always possibilities of, you know, non-parodic rap versions of Oh, Pretty Woman. And the court in Acuff Rose even reminded to see whether those might be affected by two live crews version. There are always licensing markets which we could, you know, postulate. And so what the court saw, I think genuinely saw as a very limited decision. And I think lower courts may or may not read it that way to Justice Kagan, to the Chief Justice. It seemed to be much further going, um, uh, further far reaching. And it also seemed to undermine a lot of law that was quite important. And we'll just have to see what the courts of appeal make of it. And since you mentioned artist several times, and of course, I think of them, the artist, formerly Prince. known as uh, Prince, could you just explain to our audience why the initial photographer had the right, even if Prince had not agreed to the photograph being taken. So the paparazzi issues, I think maybe it's the right of personality or something. It just I, I, This is interesting and complicated. I'd love to you to explain it to us just a little bit more. Sure. Very basically, if you want to not have someone take a photo of you, copyright isn't the thing you use. You use uh, rights of publicity, as you said. Publicity. Uh, Akil, you say this is a, it's basically a tort right, um, a right of publicity protecting your privacy, somewhat contradictory terms. And copyright is more uh, what happens to the photograph once taken and what do they own. But you, you raise a really important point, which is what is it that Goldsmith owns when she takes a picture of prints? Right. She doesn't own prints. She doesn't own his really fine uh, uh, cheekbones uh, or, you know, the delicate or his the, the tracery of his hair. She doesn't own the expression that he put on, which was very uncertain, sort of was almost sort of like run Bambi run kind of look. Um, what is what is it that she owns? Well, she owns the lighting. She owns the selection of the views, the way that she frames it. She owns the exposure. Right. She doesn't own. That is to say, copyright doesn't cover the thing represented. And that's something which the Second Circuit got wrong in this case. They basically made out like she had a monopoly over the ability to represent Prince's face, which is obviously oh. nonsense. Oh. Um, they didn't say that because that would have been obviously nonsense, but their arguments seemed to conduce it to that conclusion. And the Supreme Court pulls back from that a little bit, but it doesn't focus enough on the protectable elements. What are the protectable elements in that photo? Well, color. Well, that's dramatically different in the uh, the Warhol silkscreen. 
exposure dramatically changed. The cropping, her, his is different, right? The expression like of mood, you look at the two of them side by side, and one is deer in the headlights, and the other is I am a sex god, right? And so this is these are very different images. So this is something where the protectable stuff that she actually the meets and bounds, the picket fence that surrounds her copyright is actually covering a much smaller plot of land with many more public walkthroughs than the Supreme Court majority is willing to say. If you look at that and say, wow, does he actually, does Warhol actually, now that we look at that and we realize what he earned, well, yes, it is the photo. That's what he based it on. Absolutely. But is he really, how much protectable expression is he actually taking? And I think there is a line of thought that says that's one of the reasons why either you should say that they're not substantially similar in the first place, which I think they are, or you should say it's a fair use. Because Let, me ask, one, let me ask one other recursive-like question, because I, I, I know nothing about this. And audience, you're seeing now why I, you know, I just like to hang out with Jane because he, you know, he's just so interesting and so broad. I did mention to Andy, oh, there are these interesting color pictures in Justice Kagan's descent. They're actually, uh, frankly, color nudes of these are famous paintings. Now, suppose these are all out of copyright, I, I think. Um, uh, these are old paintings. I think the youngest is um, a Manet, Olympia, and there's a Titian and a Pre-Titian. And you don't, I think, have copyright if you just take a really, really good picture of a great painting. You, ordinarily, if you, it's not very transformative if you just yep. take a picture of a, of a painting in a gallery or something. But suppose these paintings themselves hadn't fallen out of copyright. Could Justice Kagan have used them as sort of fair use, you know, in a public exposition of copyright? Uh, that's exactly, it's a wonderful question. Um, and is actually true if you think about it with the majorities too, because after all, both the uh, the Warhol uh, prints may still be under copyright there. Oh, yeah. Says. And of course, the original Goldsmith. Now, Goldsmith probably wants her picture being reproduced, but you could imagine lots of situations in court cases, and it happens, where the copyright holder doesn't want the stuff uh, reproduced. And the courts have uh, gone back and forth on that. I'm glad to say that either because of reasons based in due process, where it's like we actually need this in order to explain to the citizenry what our ruling is. To paraphrase Cohen versus California, I strongly resent the draft would not uh, convey the same meaning. It's like, <laughs> if I don't have the picture, right, uh -huh. then I, I need this stuff. And that's at the core of a successful fair use claim. Or and you I could understand that for her initial photograph and the yep. Warhol, but but what about you know these other artists that you're just bringing in as illustrative, so to speak, or exempt, you know, as, as exemplary? I think it's part of the same thing. It's still part of the reasoning. You know, it's part. You know, it's what, yeah, but now but these people haven't kind of consented to, to it by being plaintiffs and defendant in a court case all about these two um, right. uh, images. I think under the majority's analysis, if there were a well-recognized market for licensing images of paintings, let's assume they're under copyright, 
for judicial opinions. And judges do like to have their little literary and artistic, you know, deviations when they show what lovely, well-rounded human beings they are. And their clerks are not also immune to this. And thank goodness, because it makes our job as legal scholars much more interesting when we get to read the the products that they they offer us. They might, if there was a licensing market, I might say, you know, sure, do you want to, do you want to, you know, that lovely Escher picture of one hand drawing the other hand? Yes. That just seems so much of statutory interpretation strikes me as encapsulated within that painting. And I would just, I think I'm going to slap it right in my, in my majority or dissenting opinion. I think that, that Escher, that Escher is in the case book that I used uh, to illustrate Renvoy. Yes. Actually. Probably paid for it. Yes. I Uh, think they did. And I personally think that there's an argument for fair use there because I think there is, is a no conceivable market. And there's a circularity here, right? Which is if we believe there is no market and so it's a fair use, then there will be no market. And since there is no market, then it will be a fair use. Yes. Right? Because I can go, but the contrary is also true. So there's a pretty strong argument since fair use mentions multiple copies for classroom use that the course packs that Akil and I got in our youths as undergraduates and law students, which were reproduced without people paying permission fees, were perfectly legal as fair use, at least if the taking wasn't like ludicrous and extreme. But then we, the Copyright Clearance Center was created, which insists on licensing even the tiniest fragment of work. I constantly, despite the fact my books are under Creative Commons licenses, I get payments from the Copyright Clearance Center. It's like, the whole thing is free. Why are you paying me? I want to say. And the court (laughs) said, look, there's a market. That means that not licensing must be a violation of copyright law. And the, the dissent, of course, points out the circularity here. What we believe in terms of how far artists should be able to control the penumbra of their works will affect what they actually can control because subjective human beliefs feed into whether or not markets exist or are allowed as legitimate. And that in turn influences the law. So failure to exercise fair use is like not working out your muscles. They atrophy. And if fair use claims are not made, they disappear. So, you know, it sounds like um, that's a, a likely impact of the court's opinion one way or the other is that it will change, you know, uh, the calculus, even if, uh, you know, and so the court has, has very, as I think this is a good illustration of how the, the court has somewhat limited ability to limit the impact of its, of its opinions. Um, and so that sometimes, you know, it's, it's a uh, cold comfort when they, when they, they say, well, we're limiting it to this or, you know, don't, don't, uh, you know, don't take me too seriously here, Bush versus Gore, yep. you know, or whatever. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, and, and that actually absolutely um, happens. It actually fits one of our other themes. Um, there's an example of this in a different copyright case, uh, which Justice Thomas writes called Star Athletica, which says that you're not supposed to be able to get copyrights over things that are useful articles. So if it's a, if it's a, a, a coat hook or a, a lamp, you're not supposed to be able to get a copyright over it unless there's some element that is separable from that, which could exist independently. So there's a Siamese cat as the base of the lamp, and you could have just a statue of the Siamese cat. You could get a copyright over that. And um, Justice Thomas goes, well, all we need to do to figure out what this means is to read the statute. You imagine generations of legal scholars and judges going, read the statute. Why didn't we think of that? And he then invents a test which thoroughly mutilates the actual words of the statute. 
And it ends up that so long as you can imagine anything floating free of, in this case, a cheerleader's uniform off into the ether, in your imagination, you can imagine it on the wall of a gallery, then it's copyrightable. And it's like, or it's, we were a scholars were reading this like, what are you doing? This is insane. This is going to, people are going to start copywriting the shapes on floor mats, you know, the ridges on floor mats. Sure enough, they have started claiming <laughs> copyright over the ridges on floor mats. And in the, this, you said it's unpredictable what the courts, how the courts can control the reading of the, what they said, Andy. Genuinely, this happens that after that case, somebody says, I think my banana costume is copyrightable. And this goes all the way to, in a case called Silvertop, goes to the Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals goes, yes, we think you're right. They go, now you might think that a banana costume would have to be, I don't know, yellow and perhaps curved. <laughs> um, but it need not be. It could be any color from brown to green and it could be straight. So when Akil sends his kids out, now graduates are unlikely to do this, dressed up in a brown, straight, banana costume, and their friends say to them, why are you dressed up as a stick? <laughs> they would say, well, according to the Court of Appeals, this is copyrightable, even though its purpose is to portray a banana, and the banana costume's function is banana portrayal. This is an utterly, it was a ludicrous decision that Thomas made, but he thought the majority thought who uttered it, that it would have limited ramifications. It's now in an area that, you know, few people care about, uh, unless you care about designs and functionality and copyright over fashion and so forth. It's kind of completely introduced all this confusion. Question, will the Warhol decision be the same? Optimistic response? No. This is a very narrow thing that was just talking about one market, one use. There was a smoking gun here. My goodness, it was the same thing, the same publisher, $10,000 to Warhol. He should get it for free, but she just gets nothing. This is just a very narrow decision. Shouldn't have needed to be made. The other side, empathizing more with Justice Kagan, goes, in the process of getting to its, quote, simple result, the court makes nonsense of the previously created rules on fair use and derivative works. And it throws a lot of lines that we thought we had separated, uh, that we had clearly uh, outlined it throws them into disorder. So in trying to achieve clarity, it actually achieves the result. Those are the two possible views of the case. I lean towards the pessimistic one. Bottom line here is that uh, it, it doesn't just matter what the court says, it matters how it got there. Yes. And that's the interesting thing about the court's reasoning, which is, I think the things that copyright scholars are most upset about are lines that the court... And the clerks on the court probably didn't think that hard over. Like they they were kind of throwaway lines, but they're going to be hugely consequential. Akil, in an article published a long time ago, uh, made the point after Henry Hart's time chart of the justices that the justices may not spend that much time, ironically, working on constitutional law, and their clerks may spend even less, and they may not have the depth of knowledge that other people do, which he used to, I think, push back against the sanctity of common law constitutionalism, because effectively he was saying, not too subtly, that the uh, scholars might know a little bit more about what the Constitution meant. And of course, he did so with his normal charm and grace. Um, and it's a convincing position. If that's true about constitutional law, it goes 55 times as much when it comes to copyright law. 
Um, the court's actually taken a bunch of IP cases recently, but when they take those cases, they don't take them enmeshed in the nitty gritty little world, which I, in my intellectual property nerd world, live, where I'm thoroughly aware of like, if you move this piece, it affects all of these other pieces. And as a result, their interventions can be kind of random. And now we have the Supreme Court in very short period of time. Justice Breyer's uh, last, one of his last opinions uh, was in Google versus Oracle, a resounding defense of fair use, resounding defense of transformativeness, and, and joined by many of the members of the, the majority of, in the Warhol case. And it's very clear that even though there was a licensing market and a market and a license was offered to Google, they still were free to do something with Java code that Sun and then Oracle didn't want them to do. And then turning on a dime, the same court says rather different things in the Warhol case. To them, it looks like a very different case. Right. To them, they think that the lines are clear to the people inside the copyright world. Um, the lines don't seem as clear. Well, I think if this podcast demonstrated anything, it demonstrated the value of consulting with the scholar in the field. Boy, did we learn a lot about copyright today. And, <laughs> More than uh, you wanted to. No, 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 <laughs> no. In fact, the, the opposite is true, which is why we're going to try to elicit a promise from you to come back and teach us more about it uh, in a future episode. I'd be delighted. Um, music, we're going to talk about more in that episode. Andy, you wanted to talk, I think, about artificial intelligence and, and, and how that is going to affect everything going forward. Lots of, of stuff still to be discussed. I'm actually, I'm literally just, MIT is just deciding on whether it's going to publish my new book, which is on AI, which is called The Line, which is about how we will deal with legal claims made by or on behalf of artificial intelligences to actually have uh, personality, to have legal personality, have constitutional rights, and uh, how we'll deal with it as a cultural matter, artistically, but also how we'll deal with it um, legally speaking. Famous uh, so. article by uh, Christopher Stone, Should Trees Have Standing? And Jamie's yes. asking questions sort of akin to that. Yeah. And on the music stuff, I'd be happy to, um, I'd be delighted to. We're actually just putting out the second edition of our comic book, which is on the history of Musical borrowing, uh, and it's as as you said, Andy, from Plato to rap, and yes. it turns out that the history of musical borrowing is just utterly fascinating. And we spent ten years doing the musicological and historical research on that, and put it all into a comic book. And this comic book, in the online version, actually has footnotes. So if you have a question where we got the authority to make a particular claim, you can click on any frame in that comic, and like true geeks, we will provide you with the actual articles and books on musicology we use to make it. But um, yes, this is the attitudes about complexity of our views of borrowing that we've talked about in this podcast. I'll run right through that. Plato thought that mixing of the musical modes, the Phrygian, the, the, the Stygian, and so forth, should be forbidden with the Dorian, that it should actually be forbidden, that it undermines the whole state. So in his view, remix is uh, is an anathema. So, um, so we're going to talk about like Robin Thicke and Marvin Gaye and absolutely. George Harrison and... Uh, Ed Sheeran? And, uh, uh, right, right. All, all of that stuff. So okay. uh, the latest to do it. So I guess uh, Plato's playlist for the symposium was probably uh, fairly boring then. So. Yeah, no mixing the musical modes. Thank you so much for appearing today. And it was great to meet you. And uh, thanks for oh. a great episode. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks.